1: Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel.
3: They call me Ben. We are joined with our guest super producer, Tari. So reach out and say hi. Uh, Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. A bit of a history episode for us, you guys. We have in the past explored lost civilizations. Mm -hmm. We've explored lost cities uh spoiler alert by the way there are tons and tons of them around spoiler alert we've spoiled lost and gotten yelled at about it (laughs) that's true that's true that's a thing that happened (laughs) i think lost spoils itself at the end i think that's that's fair i I don't want to throw pot shots at it but uh it's a great show
1: it really is but then they remade it uh, into
0: a more fun version and now it's called the good place (laughs) <laughs> you know, you're right, man. I never thought about that connection, but it is kind of – not only is it more fun, it's just like a better show. It knows where it's going. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. They, it knows they have it a is. plan.
1: Yes.
3: Uh, but they do still wrestle with some of the same philosophical quandaries. Big I, time. I think that's an excellent comparison. Um, one thing that The Good Place does not have, that Lost does have, uh, is a, a, a collection of inexplicable ruins. You know what I mean? We all – look, I'm going to spoil it because it's one of the coolest parts. Talk about the hatches? Uh, spoiler countdown, three, two, one. The foot. The foot. The yeah. foot. The yeah. foot. Yeah. Where's the
0: body? <laughs> Why? Why? Why are
3: there only f- four toes?
0: That's it. <laughs> spoiler alert. You never find out. <laughs> <laughs> they will never tell you. But
3: uh, but it it turns out that they're cleaving. The show creators of Lost are cleaving. Closer to the truth than you might imagine. The U.S. is often um, explained in the following way in comparison to Europe. They'll say, in Europe, 200 miles is a long way. In the U.S., 200 years is a long time. Mm. And we often think about this country in terms of the beginning of migration Across the ocean, right? So we don't think of all the people who crossed over the Bering Strait in ancient times. We don't think of the pre-Columbian cultures that rose and fell. We think of, you know, Cristobal Colombo selling the ocean blue.
1: He sold the ocean blue. I
0: completely agree. Did you say Cristobal (laughs) Colombo? Cristobal Cologne. Oh, okay. Mm Mm-hmm. I was like, I I, I am not aware of this pronunciation. (laughs) I I like it.
3: It's a a new series that Damon Lindhoff and I and J.J. Abrams are working
1: on. Yeah, and he's just a detective Uh and he's going around – Looking
0: at land, he's like a mm-hmm. he's a purveyor of land. Yeah, no. He looks at the land, then he turns and walks away. and Then he says, "Actually, there's <laughs> more to this land than meets the eye." My mm-hmm. wife and what? And, it Yeah,
1: it's your wife and uh, a bunch of native peoples.
3: Right, right. In this in this idea, of course, Cristobal Colombo is uh, solving the crimes that he himself commits. There we go. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> it's it's essentially Memento. Comparisons have been made, but. Right. Uh, It would be—it would be apt for this fictional character to look at the land, turn around, and come back and say, actually, there's a lot more to it, Uh, to your example, Noel, because for a long, long time, we were sold a myth in this country— We being the the people of what we call the United States, we were told that there was this vast, sparsely populated continent rich in all sorts of resources. You want timber? Boom. You want
1: salmon? Boom. All you have to do is go out there – in the frontier and capture it. It's waiting for you. Right, right. Manifest
3: that destiny. For centuries, the history of North America was largely ignored or actively suppressed by European powers exploring and colonizing the continent. Nations on the eastern side of the Atlantic overwhelmingly depicted North America this way, a land of exoticism and opportunity. And they ardently and purposely suppress the fact that this continent was already home to a massive assortment of sophisticated pre-existing cultures who would have been just fine without European intervention and all the the disease and degradation that it brought along with it. So if this myth of empty North America is indeed false, what do we know about it? Like, what are the facts?
1: Oh, sure. I mean— Prior to any Europeans showing up on North American land, there were 112 million people already living somewhere on the continent. And, you know, lower estimates do range to as little as 8 million people from that 112 million. So there is a a range because it's not known the exact number of people. There's no census. There's no – any way of telling how many different peoples. You can can tell how many different – Well, at least close to however many different uh, cultures essentially exist Mm -hmm. just from finding things. But knowing the exact number of people is very, very difficult.
3: Right, right. The one thing we do know is that there were millions of people. Yes, And they weren't all just sort of strolling around, so as many as 112 million people in 1492, but by 1650, that population had already plummeted to less than 6 million. The people living at the height of pre-European history had extensive trade networks, they had rich cultural lives, they had cities, they had internal and external warfare, conflict, cooperation, all the things that Europe was doing, and they had... Dense urban areas, which is something that may surprise a lot of people listening. Right? Absolutely. No- normally, when you think of pre-European populations, we think of people living a um, perhaps nomadic existence in some areas of, con- of the continent. We think of um, complex cave dwellings, perhaps, mm-hmm. but we don't. We don't think of a a London, you know, or we don't think of a Berlin or, or something like that. Or at least like yeah, that. an
1: early version of that with structures and a highly organized society existing within these structures. So we would like to introduce you to one of the
3: largest known pre-European cities in the on the continent at the
0: time, a place called Cahokia. So in its prime, uh, about four centuries before our boy Columbo uh, stumbled onto the Western Hemisphere, um, walked away, and then decided to come back Mm -hmm. and, you know... Dig a little deeper. Uh, Cahokia was a prosperous pre-American city with a population very similar to London. Um, archaeological data showed that agricultural settlements first appeared in the area around 400 A.D. And then in 1050 A.D., you had a boom, population boom uh, at Cahokia, which became a major political and cultural center with uh, the population booming into the tens of thousands.
1: Yeah, And you know, when you think about something like this, it's hard to imagine that it could exist anywhere near current civilization, right? Oh, "Oh, that must be out in the middle of nowhere somewhere, right? Because we would know all about that. We would people in the United States would travel there to explore the the remains or something, right? Sure, but no, it it was located very close to present-day St. Louis. Yeah, it's about eight miles out of St. Louis. It's
3: located in southern Illinois. This was, by all measures that we can find, the largest North American city north of Mexico at the time. It had been built by a group of people known as the Mississippians. These were native people who occupied a large swath of the present-day southeastern U.S., from the Mississippi River to the shores of the Atlantic. This city... Cahokia was sophisticated. It was cosmopolitan. But today, its history is virtually unknown, not to just most of the current U.S. residents, but even to people who live in the area, present-day residents of Illinois.
1: Illinoisians? Illinoisians. Oh, no. <laughs> I hope that's not illinois
3: oh, oh, wow.
1: Not worth it. Just throw us in the trash.
3: <laughs> it's. This is one of those stories that, was bypassed in favor of that dominant narrative that we see reinforced in literature, we see reinforced in um, in cinema, yeah. right? And it's the idea that the people who lived here before Europeans ever arrived were somehow um, less learned, which is clearly not the case. And there's a guy named Thomas Emerson, a professor of anthropology at the University of Illinois, who had an interesting quote – A lot of the world, he says, is still relating in terms of cowboys and, you know, quote-unquote Indians with feathers and teepees and whatnot. But in A.D. 1000, from the beginning, Kaokyo is laid out to a specific plan. It doesn't grow into a plan. It starts as a plan with a purpose. They created the most massive earthen mound in North America. Where does that come from? It's a good question. It's a really good question. And – Weirdly enough, we're looking for cities to compare this to. We'll hear that it bore some similarities to London, right? But in some
0: ways, it was like Manhattan. Yeah, it's true. It was home to multiple groups of people from across uh, the lands of uh, the Mississippians. Um, Groups included the Natchez, the Pensacola, the Choctaw, the Ofo, uh, my personal favorite. I don't know because I've never really heard the name before and I like saying Ofo. It's fun. Uh, Archaeologists conducting strontium tests on the teeth of buried remains have found that a third of the population was not from uh, Cahokia. But... Somewhere else. And this is according to Emerson, who is the director of the Illinois State Archaeological Survey.
3: Yeah, we know that the residents of this city, the people who lived in the city center and the people who lived on the outskirts, uh, they did city people things. Yeah. We have forensic traces, archaeological evidence, really, of their farming, trading, and hunting efforts. And we know that they also had urban planners and these urban planners used astronomical alignments to lay out a low-scale metropolis that ranged, uh, as, as you said, Matt, uh, from ten to 20,000 people, and they planned it again from the beginning. The city's between six and nine square miles in area. Inside its borders, as close as we can estimate, there are about 120 earthen mounds, and one thing we know for sure is uh, the mound-building technology was Pretty demanding. This was back breaking work. We're talking about stacking with digging, first off. Yeah. Digging, hauling, and stacking. Because
1: these these mounds are underground dwellings or, or structures, essentially. It's like a, a place to go into, right? It's a uh if when you when you imagine it, um I guess in your head, I think it is be Ben because of the um growing up, I guess being shaped sometimes by these European ideas of what the United States is, you don't even have a real understanding of what a mound is when we're talking about them. Uh, You know, like, and just talking about how difficult it is to create a single dwelling place or a building that would be used for any kind of function, like, it's, you're absolutely right how difficult that would be. A lot of these are tombs as
3: well, Mm -hmm. and by hand, this community stacked 55 million cubic feet of earth. And they, as far as we know, they did it just using woven baskets to transport it. The largest mound, which is later called the Monk's Mound, after the French Trappist who uh, tended to it in the 1800s, was the site of a sizable building where the city's political and spiritual leaders met. Was surrounded by a wooden palisade almost two miles in circumference. The town center was where residents, pilgrims, and leaders worshipped and held ceremonies, which will be very important later on. Right now, if we picture the city, think of it the way that you know a lot of modern cities are. There's a downtown area, and a lot of people will travel there for work, for uh, leisure, leisure mm-hmm. uh, or. You know, maybe to attend certain events, cultural events, but just
1: in a short term, essentially,
3: right. They won't live there. Mm-hmm. you know, so this city is no different. Most of the Mississippians live on the other side of this palisade in these single room homes you were talking about, Matt. They're rectangular, they're about fifteen feet long, twelve feet wide. We know we know this based on what we were able to dig up. They have wooden post walls covered with mats, thatched roofs. Uh, far from being a collection of villages or campsites, they were linked with their own network of courtyards
1: and pathways, kind of the way streets are laid out. Yeah, and 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 you know, there would be physical connections, like you're saying, that actually connect everything together. the The different individual homes have that feeling. It's it's. Um, Again, so uncharacteristic of the way sometimes it's depicted or the way maybe we imagine in our minds of what a Native American city could be like.
3: So we've laid out a bit of the architecture. We've laid out a bit of the street planning. We've learned a little bit about the inhabitants. This leads us to the next question. Where is Cahokia now? Nowadays,
1: there's nothing. There's a series of mounds, right? Yep. And there's a, I mean, that, that's about it. There's some ruins and maybe a little bit of evidence left of that there was human activity the, that occurred in and around these mounds. Because you see the metropolis of Cahokia,
3: thousands and thousands of people, as near as we can tell, one day Disappeared. By 1350, it was largely abandoned by its people. And even today, in 2019, no one knows
1: why. And we're going to find out at least what we know
0: at this point after a quick word from our sponsor.
3: It's crazy.
1: Well, first of all, let's say let's talk about what we know it wasn't that caused the disappearance of all the humans at Cahokia. Uh, not the usual suspects—things like war or maybe a disease that came through because uh, some Europeans came through. Because we're talking 1350 before 1492, right before some of the early, early, early uh, landings. So we don't—we know it's not that. And uh, European conquest doesn't have anything with it. Nobody came through like, um, you know, Hernando de Soto because this guy was probably the first person to actually make it to Cahokia, right? And he didn't arrive until 1540. That's crazy. Almost 200 years after it had just been, you know, uh, disappeared. Mm -hmm.
0: He looks like he snoozed and he loosed. I guess (laughs) so.
1: (laughs)
3: Yeah, it's true. By the time DeSoto and Co would have which is another show that we're pitching on this
1: DeSoto like, and Yeah.
3: Co.? Yeah, we're doing a shared universe of European explorers and we're um we're adapting we're adapting it to modern taste. So we've got our detective show. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Cristobal Colombo.
0: DeSoto and Co. is what is that? That's like a buddy comedy, I want to say. Yeah. And Co. being like maybe his (laughs) faithful manservant. (laughs) There we go. I don't know. (laughs) Tell
3: us who should play these roles, by the
0: way. You know, there's a lot of talent out there. I think Mm -hmm. Matt Berry would make a really good DeSoto. (laughs) I think that's a good call. Yes, I could see that. (laughs) Who could be who could be faithful manservant?
3: Well, let's no, let's give this the time it deserves. Let's, let's think that. about that. Yeah, yeah let's, yeah,
0: let's it, let it uh, uh, who, marinate a little bit. Who, and
1: let's make some T-shirts. And
3: let's make some T-shirts. Yes, yes. Surely Matt Berry will be fine with that. I want. Yeah. Now I'm now I'm wondering who's like a hot TV actor now. I don't. know.
0: People like that show Scandal a lot. Who's in that? Uh, yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> I don't watch TV anymore. Let us know. Let us know who is on TV. Who is
3: on TV? <laughs> <laughs> Who is on TV today and would they be a good co for De Soto and Co? It's strange though because he would have seen this empire in decline. He would not have seen the glory days, the the vast parades, right? The the grand ceremonies, the hunting parties. He would have instead seen ruins Mm. and mounds. Many of the civilization's villages, the Mississippians, were established near trade routes or sources of water and food. But Cahokia, like Atlanta, was different. It had plenty of resources, but it was not built on ideal land. What we mean when we say Cahokia was similar to Atlanta is the following. Picture in your country or your neck of the global woods the biggest cities. The biggest cities in your area. Okay. In many cases, if you're talking about the biggest cities in the country, they will be built along sources of water. You know, there will be a a city by the bay. There will be a city by a river, right? Things like that. A city by a gigantic lake. Or a coast. Or a coast, exactly. And in the case of Atlanta, there is a river called the Chattahoochee, That is in the area, but our real transports, our real sources of transit are man-made, the world's busiest airport. That's a river of people and goods. Um, We still have train lines. Those, for a long time, replaced the role of rivers. Cahokia did have a ton of resources, timber, fish, all that that jazz, uh, thanks to their position around these two rivers in their area – but they were built on land that was prone to flooding, which makes us wonder why build something there at all, much less a teeming metropolis.
1: Well, there seems to be at least somewhat of an explanation, and it has to do with being able to travel from various places easily, especially if you were to get on the water, to travel to this place, almost as if it was meant to be a place to go, Uh, in the same way that the downtown was set up, almost like something that you temporarily go to and then leave and go back home. Like the entire city was that almost, a pilgrimage city, where all the Mississippians could gather for big events. A destination, Yeah, right? Yeah,
3: yeah, you're absolutely right. So according to Emerson, again, it may have been a good area to explore, but not so good to live in because, you know, flooding. Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) No, Nobody likes that.
3: So something changed around AD 1000, according to Emerson. It's that boom we mentioned earlier. It becomes this major city center. But most of the change doesn't have to do with the economy, at least according to the experts now. Most of it has to do with what we could, in general, call religion. So we don't know a lot of the specifics but we do know that the city may have been built primarily for these sacred gatherings and ceremonies. What do we mean when we say sacred gatherings and ceremonies?
0: We don't mean it's all pretty. Yeah. So, archaeological work has also uncovered a mound containing mass burials. Um, while the extent of this is still being debated, it appears that the Mississippians may have conducted a little bit of light ritual human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Just a touch, a dash of human sacrifice. Um, And that is judging by what appears to be, okay, it's not so light, hundreds of people, mostly young women, buried in these mass graves. Uh, Some of them were likely strangled. Others uh, possibly were bled out. Um, four men were found with their heads and hands cut off. Another burial pit, mostly males, uh, had been clubbed to death. And researchers have found no specific evidence of any kind of influence of warfare or invasion from outsiders.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's rough. And that's, again, why why Ben was saying something we could consider religion, right? It's not necessarily – uh belief that was held by everyone, but there was at least a group of people at that city center hmm. that w- was killing people.
3: Well, and to Noel's point there, it is crucial that we recognize these were not the, – nothing indicates that these were prisoners of war. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the hands
1: – the guys with their hands cut off and – Right. And all that.
3: Yeah, nothing indicates that would be a situation similar to Apocalypto or as Mesoamerican civilization is portrayed in Apocalypto. Do you guys remember that movie?
0: I remember it existed. I did not see it. I think I'd already written off Mel Gibson at that point. Oh. Hadn't he already had some weird racist outbursts by then? Let's see. <sighs> I, can't I can't remember. remember. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to keep track. Which is sad, right? That is kind of sad. Has uh, he has he made a comeback? I don't think so. No. I think he's just going to count he, money. Is he still canceled, do you think?
3: I believe so. Yeah. I believe so. He uh, he called some he called some law enforcement some yeah, terrible things. That's right. That's He's
0: right. Uh, pretty virulently anti-Semitic. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Does that mean Passion of the Christ is
3: canceled too? I don't know. I still, you know, that's. Th- I have you guys seen it? No, I've never, I know. I never wanted never to. It. I watched the Satan shows up, so I watched the Satan clips predictably, but uh-huh. I haven't seen the whole thing and. Uh, me and my ex used to sit around and we'd have the DVD. This is back when DVDs were a thing. Yeah. And then we would always ask ourselves, is tonight the night? You know, we were making dinner. We want to watch is – is this the night where we watch Passion of the Christ? Not exactly a date film. Yeah. And we went for years asking ourselves if tonight was the night – Eventually, we had planned – we said, you know what? We're never going to watch this. We're going to get a bunch of stickers that say is tonight the night, and then we're going to go to Best Buy, and we're going to stick them on uh, Passion of the Christ DVDs.
1: (laughs)
0: That's a really good... That's pretty funny. <laughs> is,
3: I mean, it is tonight the night is a great sticker to put on stuff.
0: But you just specifically sought out the the, the Satan scenes.
3: On YouTube, yeah. You didn't see
0: the bludgeoning or the beating mm. or the...
3: any. Yeah. I wanted to see how they handled uh, infernal powers, and it was pretty spooky. Isn't he just kind of like a grizzled old man? It's, uh, if I remember correctly, it's a very, very pale, hairless, feminine-looking oh, figure. Oh,
0: that's pretty cool. I like that look for, for the
3: old devil. It was yeah. spooky. Mm-hmm. Spooky stuff. But Mel Gibson aside, in Apocalypto, you will see depictions of um, hunting parties gathering people from different tribes outside of the city center, abducting them and using them as uh, victims of, you know, in a ritual sacrifice. This appears to be a situation wherein the government of the city was sacrificing its own people which, you know, without it, – it's tricky for us to um, to ascribe the motives there because we don't know why they were doing it, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, we don't know if it was tied to maybe a seasonal or, or uh, a, a turn of the seasons or a harvest cycle. We don't know if it was meant to be a, an appeasement to some sort of divine force. Maybe you're sacrificing people to the river. You know what I mean? I just or, made that up. I don't well, know.
1: Well, yeah. Again, like you could you could feasibly imagine that it would be to prevent the rivers from flooding again, right? From the land from flooding. I can totally imagine that. Doesn't mean it is real or actually happened, but I can – I can see why you would want to do that or go to those lengths to prevent a massive flood from occurring.
3: There's another – I think you pointed out earlier, Noel, uh, that these people did not all die in the same manner, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So there's another archaeologist, a guy named William Isminger, who is the assistant manager at the Cahokia Mounds, who who posits that there must have – if not involved in sacrifice, there must have been some sort of external threat – whether it was from um, a local source or whether it was from something very far away, because the city was raised and rebuilt four times between 1175 and 1275. So imagine the city, the, the biggest city close to you as you're listening. Imagine that city collapsing and being rebuilt four times over 100 years Right? Wow. We don't have a ton of cities like that here in the U.S. We do have Atlanta, which was burned to the ground, Yeah, right? Uh, but that happened once.
1: Okay, I don't want to keep harming on this, but is it – I just wonder if you guys think it's possible that it was some kind of massive flooding that would occur. Because I can imagine that happening four times in 100 years mm-hmm. where the entire area floods and you have to rebuild everything. Uh, I mean, I can imagine it. It's a
3: good hypothesis, you know, because Aspinger is not definitive on his opinion on the mysterious collapse of Cahokia. Uh, He says maybe they were never attacked, but there was a threat there, and the leaders felt the need to expend a tremendous amount of time, labor, and material to protect this central ceremonial area. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then, as we said— after reaching its population height, ten to 20,000 people in about 1,100, the population shrinks. And by 1350, it's gone, Kaiser Sose style. Did they exhaust land's resources? Were they victims of social upheaval? Were they finally attacked? Were their droughts? Was there climate change? Or to your point, Matt, did the waters rise?
1: We'll find out after
0: a quick word from our sponsor. Did the waters rise one time too many? That's the question. So to uncover uh, the clues to the city's fate, a research team led by the University of Wisconsin-Madison geographers Samuel Munoz and Jack Williams performed laser diffraction particle size analysis on sediment samples from Horseshoe Lake, an oxbow lake uh, near Cahokia, and that is a, a, a shape of a type of lake. The samples yielded evidence of eight different separate flood events over the past 2,000 years. Um, drought, overexploitation of these resources, and human conflict have all been thrown in the mix as far as reasons are concerned behind the end of Cahokia. But an earlier study of sediments from Horseshoe Lake Suggested that major flooding had occurred in the area around twelve hundred, so that would be right, right around,
3: right after the peak population of yeah. the
1: city. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, now I'm getting a bigger picture about just getting the peak of population, and then something coming by, and it being that much more catastrophic.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The team analyzed sediments from another lake that was. 120 miles, or for the rest of the world, 190 kilometers downstream of Horseshoe Lake, and they found that there was confirmation of some sort of catastrophic flood. The Mississippi River rose more than 10 meters. That's 33 feet. And they believe it played a critical role in the total abandonment of Cahokia within 150 years. This kind of stuff is happening... In the modern day, you know what I mean? On monsoon plains, there are people who are continually building their houses, rebuilding them, evacuating when the waters rise. But although that is a very strong uh, set of clues, it's not a definitive thing, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. But we have to say for all intents and purposes at this point, the mystery remains unsolved. And the strongest indicator is, is probably flooding, that the city became flooded one too many times, but whatever the case – Cahokia was largely ignored by Europeans and, later, Americans because it didn't jibe with that official narrative. It was physical proof of a sophisticated, rich, dense urban culture existing for centuries before the arrival of Europeans. And its existence was something that a lot of Europeans didn't want people to know. And and as a matter of fact, when Europeans came, a lot of native people— didn't know what was going on they would say hey what's that what is that gigantic massive series of mounds and they would shrug and say i don't know
0: it's always been there yeah this is ghosts of the past essentially you guys can i interrupt for one second and ask a really important question yeah almond joy or mounds <sighs> which one do they both have coconut yes oh uh, I'm so out. you're out yeah,
3: I'm I'm okay give me, Wait, you give me some of the peanut no butter give me some of the no coconut
0: what about I- you I prefer Almond Joy. I like uh, to have a little crunch in in my uh, coconut uh, chocolate bar. What's the difference? Mounds, well, there's the song. It's sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Almond Joy's got nuts. Mounds don't. They just happen to have uh, lots of uh, bodies with their hands and feet. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I got there. You got there.
3: (laughs) You got there. Uh, This also also inspires me. This has nothing to do with our episode, but it's a great question. Uh, Favorite candy bar? Uh, least favorite, what and why, uh, I think Zero is— I was about to say
0: Zero. It's the, right? the worst one, It's, it's the worst one. It's a garbage candy bar. Such, white chocolate is pretty garbage in general right. on its own unless it's like used as an accent piece in another thing, right? Sure,
3: sure. White white chocolate shouldn't be just on its own. But also Zero Bars are somehow offensive to the
1: palate. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> it's so funny. I knew you were going to Zero Bars.
1: <laughs> you know
3: what's up, man.
0: Yeah, I don't I,
1: know that I've, I've ever had one of those.
0: Oh, yeah. Sweet right. summer child. Yeah. <laughs> Must be nice for you. <laughs> to have yet not been tainted. <laughs> this explains why you're always so happy. I know. Yeah, I'm just eating 100 grands all the time. 100 grand is, now that's a top bar for me. That's 100 a, grand's a top bar. Quality <laughs> bar. Uh, big fan of a call it? Oh, yeah, mm. I remember those. Remember those? Yeah. Had a cool commercial in the 90s, too. That did, yeah. Like a, kind of a claymation situation going on.
3: Tolberone, yes or no?
0: All day. I like Toblerone. I like the yeah. way it snaps. Yeah. I don't know what's in it, but I like it. <laughs> the dark chocolate Toblerone is. What is that stuff? This? is it? Toffee that's inside little yeah. pieces toffee, of toffee. I think. Oh. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, let let us know. Um, also, shout out to Nestle Crunch.
1: It's it's it's, a, it's a pretty Nestle good. Nestle Crunch one. is yummy too. I think it's nostalgia that makes me like it. You know. Uh, are we changing the what we're gonna start doing on this? Show every week? Just talk uh, Just candy bars? Because I'm, I'm enjoying
3: this. This is, a good, this is a good question. Also, I have it on, on fairly solid authority that other countries are absolutely smashing the U.S. out of the water in the candy bar game. No way. Yes, way, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, going back, um, it's true. We have seen this time and time and time again. Longtime listeners, you know that uh, despite what our uh, species propagates about itself in in film and in literature, we're actually terrible at holding on to anything or remembering anything. We lose entire civilizations. We have no idea. We have no idea where why some civilizations just stopped. We can guess. We can make very good, educated guesses, but often we're coming to the game very, very late because our predecessors did not want to have the question answered. We, you know, the, we're talking about um, explorers on the African continent who, when they, when, explorers from Europe rather, who would find these um, ornate ruins. And then say something like, "Well, clearly, some other Europeans
1: have been here before." <laughs> yeah, or there was some uh, unknown race of humanity that came down from the stars or from uh, inside the Earth and created this. It's definitely lizard people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nine out of ten times, you're looking at lizards. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> let's uh let's jump to like okay, we've known. Humanity has known about these mounds for quite a while. Mm-hmm. We've known they've existed. These weird mounds, they're just out there. But it wasn't until the 1960s, the 1960s, that the, the burial mounds there in the place of where Cahokia was got protected status, right? Yeah, that's correct.
3: And before the 1960s, it was the site of a lot of heavy development. Many of the mounds were, not all of them, but many were destroyed. They were leveled for farming, right, or to uh, become airfields. People built houses and highways on them. And currently, you can go see this place. It's about eight miles out of St. Louis. You can go visit this ancient lost city and explore conjecture for yourself about what led 20,000 people to vanish from it you know, in a very short time
1: span. You can go to CahokiaMounds.org, which is C-A-H-O-K-I-A-M-O-U-N-D-S.org if you want to learn more specifically about how to get there and everything. Mm -hmm. And this, if, if this,
3: for some of us, this is our first time hearing about this, this sounds amazing, a lost civilization in the heart of the United States Who wouldn't want to learn more about this story? Who wouldn't want to lend a hand solving the mystery? You might be surprised. Currently, about 250,000 people visit this site every year. In comparison, about 4 million people visit the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. So there's
1: probably not going to be a line. Yeah, you should be okay.
3: And that's that's the thing that leads us to a, another another topic we don't have time to explore on today's show. How many other things like this are out here? So Georgia, the state in which our podcast is based, has a rich pre-Columbian history all its own. A lot of people aren't aware of it. As, as a matter of fact, the building in which we record this show, Sits atop an ancient sacred spring. You guys heard about this, right? Yeah. I thought
0: you were going to say Indian burial ground, and I was going to be like, <laughs> "I'm out."
3: <laughs> that would explain so much, right? It really would. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a cistern hidden in the tower of the Ponce City Market Building, and it still collects water from uh, an ancient sacred spring that was driven underground. History is a palimpsest, um, which I think we've said before on this mm-hmm. show. So a palimpsest is a a weird thing but a great comparison. Back when paper was uh, much, much more expensive and time-consuming and rare, people wouldn't just throw away a sheet of paper. If they needed to write something down, they would erase the previous information and write over it. But because of the way they wrote, we can still see what was there before because there are indentations in the paper. And that's a lot like studying history. We're not looking at the stuff written on top. We're digging deeper. It's what the show is all about. And the strangest thing is we never
1: quite seem to get to the bottom. And we probably won't ever. We're going to be making this show for the next 200 years this whole studio is going to flood four times in oh, the next man. hundred years.
0: Well, thankfully, it's sort of like a mini Noah's Ark kind of situation. Like, yeah. We, we describe it as the shipping container, but it really is. It probably would just rise with the waters. Yeah. We just continue podcasting atop the high seas.
1: Tari, are you going to be okay to just keep it rolling while uh, all that's <laughs> happening? Okay. Yeah, she's, she's yeah, she says, uh, oh, she said, of course, I got this. It's a big yes.
3: Tari is so cool, you guys, but she did not sign up for a, <laughs> a catastrophic flood, right? <laughs>
1: She could she can
3: handle it. I guess it. most people don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There are very few people who are like, oh man, can't wait. I'm so I'm so hype. Unless you live in Miami. Oh gosh. That's right. That's right. You have family there. We hope that you enjoyed this brief exploration of the mystery of Cahokia. As Matt said, you can visit their website for more information. And we would like to hear from you. What are the what are the forgotten monuments? or ruins in your neck of the woods. We talked a little bit about what was built upon ancient uh, sites here in Georgia with just one example. I imagine there are hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, even better, more explicit examples, and, and we want to know yours.
1: Yeah, and have you ever been to a uh, Mississippian culture mound structure anywhere or a series of mounds anywhere have uh, you been to some of the mounds in Georgia or just wherever you live? We want to know. Uh, we want to know your experience and if you've heard anything else that we should learn about, or a whole maybe a whole another podcast we should make about that specific uh, culture or location. Please uh, find us on Facebook or Instagram, uh, where we are "Conspiracy Stuff" and "Conspiracy Stuff Show." We're also on Twitter, hanging out over there. Uh, but let's just, you know, everybody, just try and be nice on Twitter, okay? Let's everybody be nice. Most of y'all are super cool. Are people but not being nice on Twitter, Matt? I've just noticed on Twitter lately there's been a lot of not niceness. Really?
0: <laughs> yeah. Just Twitter at large or our
1: Twitter? It's just very opinionated. That's all wow. I think. Uh, okay, so if you don't want to do that stuff, find us on our Facebook group. Here's where it gets crazy where we have the best mods on the planet.
0: Shout out to you guys. Yeah, people get cranky on there sometimes too. But it's okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. we, again, those mods hold us down. It's true. Uh, Let's see what else we got. Um, You can check
0: out me and Ben's Instagramies if you want to. I'm at Embryonic Insider. I'm at Ben Bolin. Matt, I believe you are at Kim Kardashian. Or is it Kylie Jenner? uh,
1: I don't know what it is this week. You are at the
0: famous egg.
1: (laughs) That's it. That's (laughs) it. I'm an egg. Find me. Like my posts. Heart them, whatever you do on Instagram. Just kidding. Don't find me there.
3: Hey, but what if what if I am a fan of the show? I have something my fellow listeners would love to hear, and I want to reach
1: the show, but I hate social meds. Check it out. Pick up your old phone. Yeah, if you've got a dial tone, then you're good to go. It'll even work on a rotary. It'll work. Mm-hmm. Just just type in one 833 std
0: Okay. Only one K. Yes. But you get it.
1: Just stuff they don't want you to know. And uh, leave us a voicemail. It's You get three minutes to tell your story. If you
0: don't get it in in three minutes, then you got to call back and do it again. We recommend practicing it in front of the mirror a few times before mm-hmm. committing. Yeah. Because um, we will shame you. If it uh, goes over. I'm kidding. We won't. We won't. <laughs> and you and can leave a second one. It's fine. But and just, you know.
1: Much like the... Uh, Network USA, we Mm -hmm. characters are welcome uh, on our thing. So just go ahead and just get weird with it if you want to or Mm -hmm. be super sincere. We accept all.
3: And if it's something that you do not want shared with your fellow listeners, all that we ask is that you say so in the recording so that we don't air your business. If it's just a private message, we totally understand. And to Noel's point, I – Absolutely agree. From personal experience, uh, trying to leave a voicemail for this show, I think I did it like five times uh, <laughs> because I wasn't ready. And we mocked
0: you aggressively, Ben. Oh, uh, I think no. justly so. We would never do that to our buddy Ben.
3: But there is one other way. If you hate phones, we get it. If you hate the social media stuff, totally get it. You can still contact us. Say our names three times in a mirror in a dark room or send us an email.
0: We are conspiracy at howstuffworks.com.